In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can take Amen. your seats. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the, Old, uh, to the New Testament book of Jude. Uh, for those of you that have trouble finding Jude, it's only one chapter. Uh, it is right before Revelation. Uh, it is only about 25 verses. And uh, it's found, if you have your pew Bibles in front of you, you'll find it on page 1,308. 1,308. Uh, but as you come to New Covenant Church today, I always begin with the word cloud. I always want to remind you that uh, there's no confusion uh, when you step into a church like this. Uh, the Bible is central. It's always going to be opened as it is symbolically on the communion table. It is opened here on the pulpit. Uh, the hope is, is that the word of God will always be proclaimed uh, from this place, or I like to say communicated, because communication involves two things. The sharing and also the receiving. Uh, like a radio signal, you transmit it, but it's no good if there's not a receiver, a little radio that can receive that transmitted signal. When the Word of God goes out, it's not supposed to just go out. It's supposed to be received. And praise God, there are people here to receive it. I'm grateful that you are here, uh, even those that are on the, online and follow up with us through the webpage uh, can follow and, and hear the gospel message. But we are in a Bible-believing church, and that's why you're, you, no matter what, you may not uh, know a lot of other things, but what I want you to know New Covenant for is that we believe God's word is true. That's why you'll hear me in just a moment say that the Bible is inerrant, inspired, and infallible. It's because without the Word of God, we're left to our own understanding, to our own devices, and we come up with our own create, creative ways. And uh, that's why we have so many problems in this world, because people are leaning on their own understanding. They're, as it says in the book of Judges, the people do what's right in their own eyes. They don't do what's right according to God. And uh, our text today in Jude uh, shows us a little bit uh, about this and, and actually gives us some encouragement. Uh, but that is why, if you'll open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at, the, at this book of Jude, this short book written by the half-brother of Jesus, somebody that grew up in the household of Mary and Joseph, uh, was very familiar with all the things that were going on. The Bible seems to say that he did not have faith until after the resurrection. And uh, he ends up writing this epistle probably in A.D. 65 or a little bit later, uh, just several decades after Jesus ascended in A.D. 33. So at this point, let us look at God's word. There are several verses I want to draw your attention to. I want to begin in the one that's been our theme throughout the whole text, which is verse 17, Jude chapter 1, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved... The predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just let that sink in for a moment. I've been trying to bring this up each time we look at the, uh, this. I call it a gospel. It does have good news in it. But it's really an epistle. It's a letter that Jude writes to people like us. People that are dealing with a culture that's hostile to Christianity. And he says in verse 17, but you must remember. And uh, do you see the next word there? Beloved. Now, I, I want to drive this point home to you while we're reading the text. He's not filled with hatred. He is not some mean ogre. It's not like he's sitting there like a dictator and trying to point his finger at you and say how bad you are. He's actually saying, hey, I'm like a loving dad. You are, you are loved. 
And that's the reason I'm communicating this. So in verse 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's basically saying is, and I'm going to help you a little bit, um, there's nothing new going on here. And basically, Jude is presenting this short little book of 25 verses, and he says, hey, don't be alarmed. Don't be, uh, don't be surprised. And this is something that sometimes we may miss. He says, the apostles already told you that this is going to happen. This is, this is not taking God by surprise. Don't worry about God. He's got it. Now, once you understand it, then you can look back at this text and you're going to say, this is not about God being afraid. This is about wisdom for you to live in this fallen world. Now, let's look reverently at the, uh, the book. I'm going to be reading the whole chapter, if you'll follow along with me. It's not too long. Uh, chapter, uh, Jude chapter 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Notice the, the loving language here again. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Let it be lavished. Verse 3. Beloved friends, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, about being in the body of Christ, he says... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated. They were predetermined for this condemnation. They're ungodly people. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and they deny our only master and lord jesus christ now i want to remind you i want to make sure you pick that up i want to remind you although you fully once knew it that jesus who saved a people out of the land of egypt afterwards destroyed those who didn't believe Verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the angel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about Moses' body, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord will rebuke you. The Lord will handle it. Verse 10, but these people, they blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. Woe to them, verse 11. For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. 
and he goes on to give a few things. I want to jump down to, to verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, in other words, the descendant, seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord, that is Yahweh, comes with yet with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of their ungodly, all of the ungodly, of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. They're grumblers, malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism so they can gain, get gain. Whew, what a mouthful. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles. Verse 18. They say to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. They're worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love. Wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who struggle or who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that's stained by the flesh. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, take the, the reading of the word and especially the preaching and make it an effectual means of salvation for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin, I want to jump right into it, but the, uh, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that this is an uncomfortable message. And it reminds me of the setting of a parent coming to a child. Now, of course, when you remember having children, your children were perfect, weren't they? Didn't they walk on water? Did you ever have to tell them twice anything? Did you only, I mean, I should flip that around. Did, you, did they ever listen when you told them once? It's interesting that when you have dealt with children, and obviously all of us have been children, so we know what it's like to be at least on that side of the equation. Um, what happens when you do something wrong? If you have a great parent, what will that parent do? Ooh, oh, pastor, you're making me squirm, and I haven't even gotten to the main point yet. Don't you just turn the other cheek? Don't you just get your wallet out and give them a little bit more money? Maybe, maybe you just put your hand over your own mouth so you won't say something that will get you canceled by them. You see, the Bible verse that was just quoted up here from the front of the church, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. In other words, God cares enough to intervene. God just doesn't take the postmodern mentality and said, oh, well, doesn't matter. Who cares? No, actually, God is a God that deals with wrongdoing. He does it better than I ever would and probably better than you ever could because he's perfect and he knows us. He knows the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. If you ever watch any of these cool TV shows, you know, uh, that, that are trying to show you the court scene, 
and, uh, and you have a, a lawyer that's trying to prosecute someone, and, uh, and even with the Johnny Depp case, you know, how do you know what was going on inside of their heads? Well, the jury is supposed to make a determination as if they did, because intent is a huge part of the judgment that's coming. If you intended to do that, that means you had malice, that you had, uh, you had an agenda. But if you did it out of ignorance or foolishness, you still have consequences, but you don't need to be punished the same way just because you were a fool. Now, God gives us this text. It's towards one of the last epistles that you can find in the, in the, uh, in the New Testament. And, and Jude ends up telling us something at the beginning. He said, it was necessary that I do this for you. If you look at verse 3, he says, I, I was very eager to talk to you about happy things, but I found it necessary to tell you about something else. And that's what we're dealing with in this particular text. There is some difficulty, but I wanted to couch it in the introduction with all of the love, 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 love talk. And I want you to realize that God is the definition of love. First John chapter, or 3 John 3, God is love. So just because we have this text that tells us that God is going to punish sin, I want you to know that it still could be said in a loving way that God loves holiness, that God loves truth, that God loves righteousness. That's one of the phrases that I try to teach in our church about the helicopter view. You remember when you have the eyes of faith? You'll see four things. You'll see God. You'll see his fingerprints on stuff. That's a beautiful place to be because most people go through this world as if there is no God. The second thing you see with the eyes of faith is you see the beauty of holiness and correspondingly the ugliness of sin. There's a lot of people going through this world that don't know the difference. They look at sin and they see it as fun. They see it as grand. They see it as lovely. And they look at us and say, you guys are fools. Why don't you jump into the sea of sin? And play. You know what I'm talking about. But when you have the eyes of faith, you get to see things the way God sees things. And you see the beauty of holiness and the ugliness of sin. And that's what we find in Jude, is that God sees the beauty of holiness. And when you don't have it, he does something about it. The fourth thing, not only do you see God and his fingerprints on, on this world, then secondly, you see the beauty of holiness and the ugliness of sin. But thirdly, you, or fourthly, you see the value of a human soul. The reason why Jude writes this is that he's writing to people. He's writing to other human beings. He's writing to folks who don't have all the understanding. How many books do you think that the people in Jude's time had? Do you think they had all 66 books? Obviously, they didn't have Jude yet until he gave it to them. No, if you understand this, the Old Testament Torah, the five books of Moses, that's pretty commonplace if you're in the Jewish community. But then when you look at the historical books and the prophetic books from the Old Testament, they were written on all those things that we were learning about in Sunday school this morning. That Old Testament was pretty big, and it was, there was no Xerox machines, and there was no thumb drives that you could put the whole Bible on. If you got a copy of it, you must, have been, you must have been really rich. Or you must have sold, stole it from somebody who was. Because people didn't have a copy of the word of God available to them except in special places. 
Jude is writing to people in the New Testament era. They have been seeing the apostles. The apostles have all died. Uh, a lot of them have been died, uh, have died already. Some of them have been sent out to other places, to mission, to mission fields out in Europe and, and other places. And Jude is now writing to the Christian community. You can see that. To those who are called, beloved in, in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The, he's writing to you guys, to me. And why is he writing? Because he cares about us. God purposed that he would say, hey, beloved community, you may not fully understand it, but I'm going to show you some things to help you so that you can navigate through the three score and ten years of this life. And that's by way of introduction. Now, he tells us a few things that we're that surprise us, but he, in, in chapter uh, three, he says, I've got something that, I, that I'm veering off to. Instead of the happy message, I have to deal with the serious message. And uh, within this, he says, because there are some ungodly people out there. Um, I was gonna see if, I'm not gonna ask you to, do any of you know any ungodly people? Uh, do I need to spend a little bit of time to explain what an ungodly person is? Well, when you read Jude, and we've already gone last week and listened to the podcast, you can hear about the nine symptoms that you can, if you look at somebody, just like if you're supposed to see if they have COVID or not, you know, the easy way obviously is to take a test. But if you look and you find that they are coughing or if they, uh, if they can't smell and they can't do a few, you can, you can see symptoms and you can start to make assumptions, okay? Uh, when you're looking at, at people who are um, ungodly, you can see the symptoms, and especially the ones who are trying to pervert the truth. In chapter 3, the reason why he has to write this is because, in, I mean, in verse 3, he says, I have to do it because verse 4 tells us why. Because some of these ungodly people, they have tiptoed in. They have come into your space. They have invaded your world. And you didn't notice. There are people that you may even love. There are people that you might think are pretty cool and pretty great. But they're bringing in this ungodly stuff into your world. Polluting your world and life view. And challenging you to follow their example instead of following God's. Now that's the introduction. Now, what I want to be able to show you in this is that uh, there's two points. Jude has a call to action. And uh, this call to action, first of all, it's, it, we want to see how we are to participate. So there's a plan of action that God has given Jude to pass on to us. And, and the first thing I want you to see is how we are to participate. There is a new priority given, and it's shaped by three actions. A new priority shaped by three actions. And then secondly, I'm going to take you to the, to the other part of it. Jews' call to action is seeing how God operates within that plan of action. Okay, and I'll, uh, and I'll show you that with six examples. Because that's what he does in our text. So going back to the first main point today is the call to action that there is a new priority. Before it was, let's talk about Jesus. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. You heard it. You sang it. It was on your lips. Doesn't that make you feel good? To name the name above every name. That name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Philippians 2 explains how he conquered. In his exaltation, he's lifted up. And there's nobody like him. There's, there's no one who can save you. And so we think about that. It's wonderful, wonderful. The wonderful name of Jesus. But now we find that this emphasis here is a new priority. We're not just focusing on all the lovely things about Jesus. We're focusing on the reason why Jesus had to go to that cruel cross. Why did Jesus have to suffer like he did? Why did he endure the cruel crucifixion on Calvary's cross? Well, because of sin. And that's why we find there, there's three actions that we have to do. If you, if you follow with me in verse, uh, I believe it's in verse 5 and 6, you can see that the first thing here, now I want to remind you that what you fully knew, uh, basically it comes down to this. This new priority is that you are to contend for the faith. And, there, and so that's one of the verbs, is to contend for the faith, and that's found in verse 3. He says, I, I'm writing, appealing to you to contend for this faith, the faith that was delivered to the saints, that God himself made sure that it got here. He personally delivered it. He provided the atoning sacrifice, and it's awesome when you realize all of it came together. So earnestly contend for the faith. So the first verb that we're supposed to do is to contend. Now, what does it mean to contend? I'm not going to focus a lot on here, but it means to fight. It doesn't mean to roll over and play dead. It doesn't mean that you zipper the lips so you never say anything. It actually says you enter into the arena. If you're going to contend, you're going to take a stand. You're not going to be, as, as, as the one book that uh, uh, Lutzer puts together, we're not going to be silenced. We're actually going to speak the truth in love. But this idea of contending, it parallels what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. And if you bring that verse up, Ephesians 6 verses uh, uh, 10, 11, and 12, you find that Paul wasn't afraid to use the analogy of contending either. He says, we fight not against uh, flesh and blood. The, the contending is not simply to push people out of our way. You know, that would give the advantage to the big people and a disadvantage to the ones who, who don't have much girth and they just flicked, away, flicked out of the way. No, he says you're going to stand against principalities and powers. And then he rephrases that against spiritual darkness. Basically, it's people who are living in their dark, dark thoughts. And that's one of the things he brings up here. He calls it apostasy. But, but you realize that, that we're supposed to contend against that. And take on, the, have the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, have the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation. You understand what I mean? It's go to war. That's not very popular these days. That's why Jude is not the favorite book by most. And probably chapter 6 is not of Ephesians is not the favorite book by most. But... I wanted to tell you is that God saw fit that we needed to hear it from not only one apostle, but from another. We needed to hear moment, uh, the message after message to say we need to have the armor of God to be able to do this battle. Now, that's one of the verbs. If you go down to verse 5 and verse 17, I'm going to go verse 5 first. Uh, now, I want to, what's the verb there? Remind you. I want to remind you. And if you go down to verse 17, you'll see the same thing. But you must remember. Okay, now in both of these particular verses, there is an instruction for God's people to remember. Okay? And he wants to remind you, so he's going to do work in order to trigger the memories. So, what is memory? 
We value it when we start to lose it. You know, I've been joking a lot saying that we all should get a lifetime supply of Prevagen. I don't know if it works or not, but it's nice to hear. You know, when people can actually remember somebody's name. They can remember to be there on time or they can remember to follow through on this. It's wonderful when you can remember and sometimes you have to be reminded. And that's what he's going to be doing in this text. If you look there in verse 5, he says, I want to remind you about things you already know. Okay, so this is not brand new stuff. He says, you fully comprehended that Jesus uh, did some things. In other, in other words, he's writing to people and he says, you knew some of your Bible, you knew it, but I'm still going to remind you about it. If you go down to verse 17, he says, I want you to remember that the stuff that the apostles told you. And this assumes that the people that were getting this letter from Jude, they actually heard with their own ears from Paul and from Peter and from some of the other apostles. And so he says, hey, were you good listeners? Did you really pay attention to the preaching that you got from them? Well, he says, I want you to remember what the apostles said. They said to you, verse 18, that in the last times there's going to be scoffers. And they're going to have ungodly passions that they follow. And they're going to bring divisions. And it's really interesting that this is the verb that he's telling the beloved people. Hey, I care about you. I want you to contend for the faith. And the way you contend for the faith is that you don't forget. And the third thing I want to draw your attention to is found in verse 7. In verse 7, is, there's one word there in verse 7. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, this is the phrase, they serve as an example. Okay, there is implied in the, in the, in the text here that if something is an example, then that means that it's teaching you. Okay. Uh, if you come to classical conversations here on Monday and you see this whole church like a beehive with kids running around, over 60 children here. Okay, it's awesome. But they're trying to teach them something and they often will have the whiteboards up and I can walk into the classroom settings and I can tell you what they're going to teach because there's examples of it on the board. Okay? There, when you have an example... It's because there is something that you're supposed to understand, something that you're supposed to comprehend. And so it's not just that you remember facts. You know, two times two is four. Four times four is 16. It's not just memorizing facts. It's understanding. And that's why he gives you an example after an example after an example. So in this particular book, Jude says, hey, I want you to contend for the faith. The way you're going to contend for the faith is by you remembering or having it stirred up for you. And thirdly, I'm going to give you some examples so you can process this and get it. So in a sense, it's quoting from 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Somebody that's not confused. And hence our theme. We don't want to be confused. Now that's the first point of this. There was three actions because he cares enough about us so that we can be more discerning about those people with the nine symptoms of ungodliness. But now the second part of the sermon is Jude's call to action is saying, yes, those are three things you do, but what does God do? And he gives us six ex examples. It's an old attribute of God, but we see it through six examples. In other words, we have a new direction. We need to earnestly contend. But God doesn't have to change directions. God remains God. He's always been God. In the catechism, who is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, 
unchangeable in his being our wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. Those things are true whether you lived in Abraham's day or whether you live in my day. God has not changed. That's why we say he's immutable. He is still the same God. That's why being a covenantal church is a beautiful thing because God, the same God, entered into a covenant that he doesn't change. And that gives us great comfort. But who is this God? Judas telling his people, telling the people he's writing to, have you forgotten? God is, is special. And he gives us six examples, and that's what I want to look at. We're going to look at, we're going to rehearse the six narratives linked to apostasy or linked to the, to the ungodliness. And then we're going to look at recognizing God's sovereign role to be able to unpack those. It's real quick. We don't have a ton of time, so if you follow along with me, first you're going to find that, that the, of these, these six examples, let's spot the six examples. Okay, if you're following along with the six examples, uh, the first one is found for us in... Got it right here. The first one that we find in this, in, this pri in this new priority is that it's the people of God. Verse 5. If you look there, you're going to say, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that didn't believe. The first group of people, that, the first example is the people of God that came out of Egypt. Now, if you're putting on your abilities, let's see if you can help me find the second one. Where is the second group of people? It's in verse 6. In verse 6, it comes up and it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains. Now, so the first group I told you was the people of God that came out of Egypt. The second group is the angels that used to be in heaven. The third group is found in verse 7b, and I've already read it for you, but if you look there quickly, you'll find out when he says the word likewise in verse 7, he says, uh, likewise, or, or just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. Now, that's the third group of people. Okay, so we have three of the six groups, three examples already given. Now, if you jump down to verse 11, you're going to find that there are three more. In verse 11, he says, woe to them. And he mentions three. They walked in the way of Cain. Okay, that's one example. Cain is an example. Then it goes on in the same verse. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. So the second group is Balaam's group. And the next group is Korah's group. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. Okay, I'm just asking you to think through this. Do any of you know who Balaam is? Do any of you know who Korah is? And I'm not talking about my, my niece. She's, she's named Cora. Everybody knows who Cain is. Because you've all asked that question, where did Cain get his wife? But what I want to drive home here today is I want you to get a little bit of these narratives. And then secondly, we're going to look at the application of God in each of these narratives. So if you're following along with me in verse 5, the first one, the nation of Israel. Okay, the people of Israel, they are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They've all been to Egypt. Uh, if I fast forward to you, there's about two million of them, and they're sick of being slaves in Egypt. So the people being miserable do what miserable people do. Help! They cry out for help. You read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you want, because the Apostle Paul refers to these people who are known for their grumbling and their complaining. They didn't like the food, they didn't like the water, they didn't like their clothes, even though they never wore out and God provided for them, and they didn't even have to go very far to get them. 
That's the way it goes. The first group of people, God blessed them by giving them a deliverer. He brings them out of, the, out of Egypt. He takes them to the Red Sea. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and he promises them a land. We call it the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and with honey. It has everything you would want. It's no longer any slavery. It's going to be great. It's just like the same picture for you and me. We've been caught up in sin, and we can't get free. We cry out to God for help, and he delivers us. He takes us through the blood of Christ. He gives us the word of God, and he promises us heaven. And yet what we do is the same as they did. We're not happy. Because we're not there yet. We like some of the sins of the past. And we'd like to go back and do them. And that's what you find. And, the people, and so, so Jude gives us the example of the people of God. And says, they didn't believe God. God gave them all this stuff and they didn't believe God. And the scary thing is, is do you believe God? Because in, in, when he says, in Jude tells us, they, they didn't go into the promised land because of unbelief, which takes you back to the book of Numbers, where they were at Kadesh Barnea, where they had 12 spies go into the promised land. It actually exists, and they came back, and 10 of the 12 said, we don't believe. It's too hard, too difficult, can't get there. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, we can, because God's on our side. Two believed, 10 did not believe. The majority ruled, and then people of God did not believe. And guess how many people at that age range got to go into the promised land? Two. Joshua and Caleb, the only two who believed. They did not enter in because of unbelief. The second group of people that I want to draw your attention to quickly was the angels. Uh, the fallen angels in verse 6. The apostasy that they had. Um, it's a little hard to understand these angels because how many of us were there? Were any of you there in heaven when the angels fell? Boy, that would have been a good TV show. I would have loved to see the angles and to try to see the, the angst and the anger and the, and the manipulation. And by the way, I'd love to see a picture of Lucifer who was one of the archangels and how beautiful he, he arrayed himself. He was an excellent orator. You know, he was one of the, the three that ministered in the inner circle, as I understand it, with Michael and with, with Gabriel. And so, so you have all of this beautiful setting. I mean, everything seems to be wonderful. I mean, it's heaven, mind you. And then the angel said, we don't like this. We don't like this arrangement. We don't like what you're doing as a leader. Now, I've speculated, and I can take you to Ezekiel and a couple other places and postulate, why in the world would anybody leave heaven? Anybody in their right mind would never leave heaven. But they chose to follow Lucifer. And I believe Lucifer, who, who knew a lot of things, he was privy to some information. I believe that he hated the idea that Jesus, the Son of God, would humble himself and come to this world that he would be born of a woman made under the law to redeem these cursed people. Because I believe that he did think that angels were better than people. And I, as, as Psalm chapter 2, uh, verse, Psalm 8, 2, that, that why do you consider man? Because they're created a little lower than the angels, as scripture says. I believe that Satan thought that they, that they were better than the rest of all these created beings called men and women. And I believe that he did not want to work with, with a God who is going to stoop and pay more attention to the people than to the angels. And the Bible says that 
a third of the angels were cast out of heaven and, they be, and they're following the prince and power of the air. And you can read all about that. Uh, but, but Peter helps us to understand what Jude is talking about. Because remember, we're supposed to be stirred up by what the apostles told us. Well, I believe 2 Peter was written before Jude. And in 2 Peter verse, chapter 2, verse 4, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under judgment. Do you see this? That, that Peter is making the case that God didn't have mercy on the angels for their sin. And so that's why Jude picks it up and he says, do you remember this? And I think he ends up quoting John in Revelation chapter 20 uh, at the beginning, verses 1 and 2, where he said, talks about how the lake of fire is there in verse 2. He sees the dragon and the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. In other words, there is a God who is going to take down these angelic beings because they deserve it. They usurped authority. If you go to Jude, he said, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains. Do you see this? So the first group was the people of God who didn't believe, they didn't get to go to, to promised land. The second group is the angels that were in heaven. They usurped authority and they were cast out, never again to come back, but to live forever with gloomy darkness. The third group is Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't have to spend a lot of time on that. I've actually driven, the last time I was to Israel, we went over into, uh, into the Dead Sea region on a special little bus. Um, it was really cool. Instead of one of those giant buses, we were down there and we were hunting for Sodom and Gomorrah. We didn't find it. There's some signs. But you know why you can't find Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> they're, they're, they're done. Okay, I know that's quite a, quite a few years ago. I mean, that was during the time of Abraham, which was uh, 2,000 years before Christ. So that's like 5,000 or almost Four, four and a half, five thousand years ago. Uh, that's when Sodom and Gomorrah were there. But at the Dead Sea, God brought judgment. The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Genesis 19, verse 24. The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. I mean, it's pretty interesting when you realize in Deuteronomy 29, which comes after Moses finally comes around about 400 some odd years later, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout and overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he mentions even Adama and Zebulim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All of that's written by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, third group, I already gave you. See if you can remember the people of God that couldn't get to the promised land because of unbelief. Yeah, the second group is the angels of heaven who were kicked out because they usurped authority. The third group is the Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, and they were destroyed. They were erased, not just canceled. You can't find them. Okay, God brought fire and brimstone down and made it so that nothing grows over that area anymore either. And why did he do that? Maybe I shouldn't say it since we live in coastal Sussex County. The Bible says, and you can read about it in Jude in verse 7. Uh, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and they pursued unnatural desires. Jude just says it simply. Now, now let's put it in simple words for you. They did whatever they wanted to do sexually. 
There were no restraints, no boundaries. There were no lanes. You could do whatever you want to do, even the unnatural stuff, the stuff that you have to fake, stuff that you have to buy extra parts in order to try to replace because you know they don't work. And so all of this is explained in this text where he says they just did it unnaturally. And they got wiped out. Now, I'm going to move on to the fourth group. That's verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. So what is Cain? Now, most of you are going to say, well, Cain was a bad brother. Jude doesn't tell us anything except the way of Cain. Do you know anything about Cain? Genesis chapter 4 tells us a lot about it. Was Cain a really, really bad boy? Some of you are confused. Whenever you heard the word, I mean, nobody names their kid Cain, right? Have you ever met anybody named Cain? Maybe on TV? Cain actually was a great guy. Cain was the first child that ever was born. The first child that ever entered into this world. And if you would have been Adam and Eve and you saw this little baby and hear that first little cry or that little coo, you did not look at Cain and say, Ew, yuck! I believe Eve looked at that little boy and said, this is the one. This is the Messiah. I believe that Eve trusted God because God had told her, yes, you're going to suffer sin for eating the forbidden fruit and you're going to have a desire towards your husband, yes, but you're also going to have one born of a woman that is going to crush Satan. He's going to bring down king, the kingdom of the evil one. And, and he's going to be born of a woman. And so guess what? When the first one was born of a woman, I think that Eve was quick to say, he's the one. And I think that's what the name means. She was disappointed when he got a little older. I mean, not when he was growing through his teenage years and probably who knows how old it was when God said you need to come and worship. We don't know whether they were 12 years old or whether they were 100 years old. I mean, they, they could live to be 1,000 years old. But we know that when the time appointed, God said for Cain and Abel to come and worship, and Cain came to worship. I want you to know that Cain wasn't a bad guy to go to worship. I'm thrilled he would have come to church. He would have. And guess what? He brought an offering that was probably bigger than any of us have ever brought. He brought of the first fruits of what he had produced. And I don't think that he was a lazy guy. I think he accumulated a bunch. And when he came to bring his offering to God, it was, it was uh, all the grains, it was the fruits, it was the vegetables, it was the things that he had harvested. He was a smart character. I mean, my goodness, there weren't many other competing with him. Maybe the free enterprise system didn't work too great for him because there weren't that many people to buy his products. But I do want you to know this, that when he had all of his stuff, he brought it to God and he wanted to bring it to God and he thought it was acceptable to God and he was excited to come into God's presence and bring it. So the way of Cain is when you understand where he missed the mark. Cain didn't need a savior in his own mind. Cain thought that he was good enough. Cain thought that by doing his works, he could come to God and be acceptable. He could do great works, and God would have to, way to go, Cain, you did a great job with what you had. You see, he didn't understand what Abel understood. Abel knew that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness. And Abel comes with a, a sacrifice. He comes with a lamb to be slain. 
And God's wrath was assuaged when he saw the blood, he would pass over him. Even though that comes in Exodus 12, it's the same principle, same God who doesn't change. But Cain came and he didn't have any blood. Cain came and he said, I'm doing a great job, God, here I am. Hug me. And when Cain, the way of Cain, was so disappointed that Cain, in, in his self-centeredness, turned full of anger. Um, James chapter 4 talks about all these ugly desires. They come from inside. Cain got angry at God. And that's why he picked up a stone to kill his brother. He didn't premeditate a murder against Abel. He could have done it many years before that. It was only because he was angry at God because God accepted Abel, but he didn't accept him. Cain wasn't accepted. Cain wasn't acceptable. And God and Cain says, I'm angry at you. I'll just remove the competition. And he did. The way of Cain is a self-centered way, a self-centered fake righteousness. Now, the fourth group that you find here is, uh, is really interesting, too. Um, after, after we had the people of God, the fallen angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Cain, then we run into Balaam. Balaam is, is an interesting character. Balaam, um, if I take you to Numbers chapter uh, 31, and Moses sent them to war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary. And uh, you can read through the rest of that one, but... When you realize, I'm going to turn over here to Numbers 33, you're going to find that this, this Balaam situation was bad. Uh, Balaam was a preacher type. He was a leader. Now, we all know Balaam because uh, of the donkey experience. You, you know about that story? That uh, he was riding, the, and this is in uh, chapter 22, I think, um, Numbers 22, and the donkey said... Uh, Verse 23 of chapter 22, And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road and a, and a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. And basically what happens with Balaam, we all know about him because he was so impatient. He was like, this is a dumb donkey. And he gets his whip and he's hurting the donkey. And the donkey finally turns around and God loosens the tongue of the donkey. And, and the donkey says, can't you see the angel there? We kind of laugh. But Balaam is like, I don't see these things. And he was willing to, to even kill the donkey because he wanted the donkey to obey him rather than to recognize that God was saying, no, not this direction. There needs to be something different. Now, Balaam had some bad things, but because of time, I just want to highlight what Jude tells us about him. So if you have verse 11, you can see it. Uh, he says... And they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam's error. It's really, really interesting and sad when you realize this, this error that Balaam had. Balaam wanted to prosper. And that's not a bad thing to want to prosper. But he wanted to have it all. And he wanted to use religion to his gain. And that's where you get the apostasy. Here's a guy that's supposed to be on God's team, and he's leading people according to his way instead of God's way. Peter explained it in chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Uh, he ends up uh, in verse 13. Suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing, they count it a pleasure to, re to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes revealing in their deceptions while they feast with you. This is the apostatizers. These are the, the ungodly people that trick you. 
He says, um, verse 14, they have their eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, and they have hearts trained in greed. They are accursed children. Verse 15. If you have that verse there, 2 Peter 2.15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Almost quoting like Isaiah. They have turned everyone to their own way. And they have followed the way of Balaam. Um, you can pronounce that in the way the Hebrew is a little bit differently. Um, and so the way of Balaam is, who was the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. He loved to take money to be able to get away with his bad behavior. It's almost like watching a Washington politician who will take the pork, who will take the, the bribe, who will take the pack money, and, and even though they know it's not a good policy, they'll do it anyway. And that's the way of Balaam. And uh, if you look at that, it's, and Peter ends up saying in verse 16, but Balaam was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice, and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, that's pretty interesting. Now, I told you there were six examples, and you guys are following me so far, so let's finish the last one. Korah. The, uh, the, uh, the interesting thing about this apostasy is it's found in number 16. And uh, when, I, when I spend some time with Korah, I am fascinated because Korah seems to be a popular concept that just recycles and recycles under different names. You know what I'm talking about? Let me explain Korah. So in Numbers chapter 16, I'm going to just start at the, at the beginning of the story. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abraham, and the sons of Eliab, uh, he says, and, and he goes on, he, he took men. Verse 2, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. So now you got the verse. It puts it together. Basically, you have Korah and a couple of these other gifted guys, and they end up saying, we're going to get a team. And so they go and they summon all these leaders, 250 of them, and they bring them together. And a crowd of 250, man, I'd love to preach to 250 here. But Korah gets about 250 people here, and they assemble themselves, and where do they, where do they gather? Well, the Bible doesn't exactly tell us exactly the location, but it tells them why the location was significant. It's because Aaron and Moses was there. These two characters. Now, are Moses and Aaron anybody special? How many of you want to, uh, to mess with Moses? You know, the guy, I mean, I, I just picture Charlton Heston climbing up the mountains on the Ten Commandments and getting the ones standing in the presence of God. Yeah, you really want to mess with Moses? The Bible says he was the meekest man that, that's been on the earth. It's pretty interesting to think about that character. But Aaron was his brother, his big brother. And Aaron was the leader of the priesthood. And Aaron was a, a pretty powerful and significant guy on his own. And Aaron had already, uh, he'd gotten angry with his brother before, along with his sister. I mean, do you remember how they, they got leprosy? Because they complained against Moses themselves? Well, uh, Jude doesn't tell us about, uh, about that. He tells us about Korah and Korah's 250 band of, of brothers. And the 250 people gathered themselves against Moses, verse 3, and against Aaron. And they said to Moses and Aaron, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? 
Do you hear what's going on? Moses, we don't need you. We have access to God already. We don't need your leadership. Step down, get out of the way. It's a coup. It's a power maneuver. He wants control. It's, Absalom does the same thing later on to David, uh, if you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. And so when you look here, and, and Jude, I'm going to read verse 11 there. He said, um, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. Now, that is pretty significant. Now, Jude tells us that they perished. Do you know how these people perished? <laughs> Some of you do. Most of you don't. Korah got these 250 people together, and they're going to do a coup. They're going to take over uh, the people of God because Moses is getting old, and they're sick of his leadership. He just doesn't have any new ideas, apparently. I mean, you could do all of the, the maneuverings. And then the next thing you realize, Moses handles it very fascinating. Moses doesn't uh, pick out an AR... What it? AR-15. He didn't pull out his automatic weapon to shoot them all down. You know, take out 250 all by himself. He did not do that. He ends up looking at them and he says, let's God, let God handle this. And so you end up hearing the rest of the story is that uh, he says, look, get all your family to people together. Bring them all out. You think you got a big crowd. You know, because a lot of people when they have church troubles and stuff, they say, well, I'm not the only one. Have you ever said that? I'm not the only one that feels that way. Boy, that's an awful trick that Satan takes you down. You shouldn't play that game because you'll get caught. And if you're like Korah, the people end up getting taken down together. And what I mean by taken down is that Moses told them to get all, you know, separate yourselves from the rest of the folks, bring your 250 and, and all their families together, meet here, and we'll deal with it. We'll come before God and we'll wrestle through it out. And, and he implied that he was going to step down. There was this feeling that Moses was going to not usurp, but he was like, okay, God, these are stiff-necked people. Yeah, um, okay, we'll deal with it. So they come together, and guess what ends up happening after they've been isolated and separated from the rest of the people? The ground opened up. It's like a giant sinkhole. And all 250 families, and then the Bible says that the ground covered up over top of them. That would have been a cool movie. But it would have been awful if it was your relatives. It would have been awful if it was you. I could just see them as the ground opens up and they're falling into the hole. Oh, God! And the dirt comes back over, filling up almost like a, a grave, a mass grave. Now, that's what happened to Korah, and they all perished. I told you this sermon was a parent loving his children. The way you understand these, five, these six narratives is this. What weaves them all together is not because they all did the same bad sin. It's because they all had sin. What really connects them is because God, in his sovereignty, in his holiness, dealt with all six. And Jude knew about them because he himself had been listening to the apostles. Because in verse 17, remember he said, remember what the apostles said? It's because he heard it from the apostles too. And so he says, let me rehearse it and remind it for you. I got these examples for you. And it's all about God, 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 God. And when you walk away from today's sermon, I hope that you will know that God is big. And he's not on vacation. In the first instance, you have the people of God, people of God. And they don't believe God. 
because God said, I'll take care of you and I'll take you to the promised land. And they didn't believe that God was that good to take them there. They didn't believe that God was capable of getting them there because their troubles were too big. Do you believe like that? They were destroyed in the wilderness. Now, I have to give you a little caveat. God did let their children go to the promised land. He was merciful and gracious, but not to the people who didn't believe. The people at Kadesh Barnea that did not follow God's command, they did not get to enter into that rest. Secondly, you have the issue of the angels. The angels that were up in glory. The angels that are supposed to come to and fro, serving God and recognizing who he is. There is nobody else like God. And, and you may hear people say, oh, God, or OMG. Let me tell you, you are not understanding who God is like the angels knew. They saw God's throne. They got to see everything up there. And they still didn't like their position. As I argue, they wanted to be better than people. They didn't want a savior who would humble himself and become a man. They wanted a God who was going to be greater than the angels. Now, God kicked them out because they followed Satan. You can read about that in Ezekiel and stuff, but they're, they're condemned. The third of the angels that we now call demons. And they try their best to mess with you, but they are just fallen angels. Now, the third group of people, I mean, because God punished them and he's reserved the lake and fire for them. He's given them that gloomy darkness. The third group of people, if you remember, was Sodom and Gomorrah. We already saw that they got wiped out, annihilated, erased, and there's no more Sodom and Gomorrah. But, but it's really weird. People have forgotten that Sodom and Gomorrah was not a great place to be. Now, let me time out and back up, rewind. It was a pretty great place to be because that's why Lot wanted to go there. Why did Lot go to Sodom? Because it was green. It was lush. Almost makes me think of, you know, the places where sin is rampant. There's a lot of green money. A lot of people go there because they can, they can spend, they can, they can be hedonists. They can do whatever they want to do. But the lesson that we've forgotten, that the, prophet, that the apostles told folks, is that you cannot do whatever you want to do without consequence. The soul that sins will surely die. It'll be separated from God, and the wrath of God will be poured out. The fourth group has to do, if you remember, we went from, uh, just from Sodom and Gomorrah, we went to Cain. Cain, sadly enough, was angry with God because he thought he was good enough. If you get angry with God because he's not giving you what you think he, you deserve, you've tried so hard, you've given him lots of money in the offering baskets, yeah, when they get past in a few minutes, you know, you've done all the righteous things, you've given an hour extra to church this week, you are so righteous, but things didn't work out. Oh, it struggles. You see, the way of Cain is to think that you deserve it. That's an apostasy that's awful. And many religions buy into it that if you'll just do this and perform this, they miss the gospel message, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. The regeneration that God does for his elect, it's beautiful. Now, the fifth group is after we did the way of Cain, then you have the way of, of um, Balaam, and that's the greed of money. And you can read about that by the other apostles when he said people should not have the love of money because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When you live this world just to be able to accumulate, get, 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 you are enslaved to a wicked taskmaster. And it never lets go because once you fill up your barns, then guess what you have to have next? You have to have new barns. 
and you have to have more insurance on those barns and you have to be afraid of somebody trying to steal the stuff that's in your barns and before long you feel like Scrooge Duck for those of you that like the old Disney stuff you know you just sit there counting your money as if that's salvation and it's not greed is a terrible thing and God's wrath comes heavy on those who love something more than they love God first commandment and the sixth one has to do with with what we just looked at with Korah, which is usurping authority, not following, falling in line with the authorities that God has set up for you to get shepherded. These people usurped and God took them out. And my encouragement to you is understand what it means to submit to the, to the leaders, to the shepherds that God has given over you, for they care for your soul. Now, when you understand this message, that's why in the fourth point sheet, we were talking about uh, how we are to participate. We are to contend and remind and remember because we have examples so we can study and understand. But we want to, secondly, was to see how God operates. And God has been operating throughout all of history. There's only these six examples that I used in Jude. You see them all. In summary, God hasn't changed. If you go to Exodus 34, 7, you're going to see that he will by no means, let's see if the text will tell you. Exodus 34, 7. If you can bring that one up. Exodus 34, 7. I will by no means clear the guilty. God told that to the people in the time right before Korah. And when you understand that, you're going to understand that God is still a holy God. He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, and that's why when you're looking at this, uh, it is a serious thing. God hasn't changed. And if you go to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 3, you're going to find out the next text says that we've all sinned. We've all fallen our own way. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, or 9 and 10, uh, we're not better than them. If you go to the next one, we're all under sin. And verse 10 says, there is none of us that are righteous, no, not one. We've all gone astray, like it says in Isaiah chapter 53. So having understood all of that... The questions that come up is, why doesn't God treat us like he did these six examples? Same God, sin is in the camp. Did God change? In the New Testament, did he get nice? Does God, did God get postmodern? You can have your truth and he'll have his. Does God share his glory? Is he kind of like laid back now, cool dude? There are a lot of people who don't have a high view of God anymore. They think that in the New Testament, since Jesus died on the cross, everything is just nice, nice, nice. Everything is just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Let me tell you that if you look through the New Testament, you're going to find like Jude said, I'd like to tell you all about what it means to live in a beautiful community, but it's necessary for you to be equipped to be able to earnestly contend for this faith. Don't let it be compromised. Don't be deceived. Don't let confusion creep into it so that you pollute it. You want to trust in the gospel, and that's it. And so that's why that uh, Romans 5, verse 8, says it so well. He says that there is, there is no more condemnation at the beginning of the chapter, but he says that the, the um, you got Romans 5, verse 8? Yep. Is that when you, when you see that while we were yet in sin, this holy God, the one who punished in the sixth illustrations, is the same God who has mercy, peace, and love for you and me. And that's why Paul said it so well, and I'm reminding it, God showed his love for you and me, 
that while we were still in this awful estate, when we were like Balaam, when we were like Korah, when we were like uh, Cain, Jesus still was able to die for us. This is why it's good news. It's wonderful news. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that Jude tells us that you are a God that not only could save us, but you are also the God who can keep us from falling. Lord, you are the one who can hold us. You are the one that can preserve us. I often call that eternal security. But if anybody is in Christ, he is or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, all has become new. Lord, to them that are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore no more condemnation. We have peace with God because of the atoning work of the Savior. Lord, we thank you that the wrath of God, which is poured out upon sin, didn't have to be poured out on us because it was poured out on Jesus when he took our place on Calvary's cross. The just one for the unjust, that's us, that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful gospel news that Jude was talking to the beloved. Lord, I pray that we'll never be confused and we'll never be a part of the apostasy that leads other people away from Jesus. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would have beautiful feet, as it says in Romans 10, and tell people about the good news, about the good Savior who willingly died on the cross while we were yet sin, in sin to save us from our sin to save us from the wrath of the Father. We thank you for this gospel message in Jesus' name.